Voices are exotic Dancers enter one by one Make love to all of your orifices In ear seduction Ear seduction Hello and welcome to Ear Seduction. I'm your host, Paul Schilling. In this episode entitled The First Gospel Part 2, we finally lay to rest the claims that morality is subjective, that it is arbitrary, that might makes right, that values are subjective, and finally, that harm is subjective. In part one of this gospel, we detailed out the claims of those that believe that morality is wholly subjective and identified the questions that arise when trying to implement a a subjective moral system, questions that must be answered. So let's now dive into the answers, as promised, to their moral claims. The first answer we must provide is in response to the claim that morality is subjective. The questions we identified in part one are based on the definitions given to us of exactly what a subjective moral system is and how it's implemented. To refresh your memory, here's a definition of a subjective moral system. It is a moral system where the subjective assignment of value of good or bad is made by a person or a group of people arbitrarily onto the acts committed by themselves or others or both. This type of moral system may or may not take into account evidence of suffering or flourishing in its subjective assessment of actions. That depends on the person or group of people making the moral assessment. Thus, in determining whether an act is moral or immoral, evidence is not required. Again, the determination of moral or immoral is assigned by a person or group of people onto an act. So those are the basic tenets of a subjective and arbitrary moral system. Now let's answer the questions posed in part one. Question one, can a person or group of people assign the value of good or bad onto their own actions or the actions of others without first assessing the evidence? The answer is no. (laughs) A sound moral system is based on evidence. If a moral system doesn't engage with evidence and doesn't utilize evidence to support its conclusions, then it is by definition not sound and therefore false. While it is possible to have a subjective moral system and make a sound moral conclusion, this is done by accident. Since a subjective moral framework doesn't require evidence to support its conclusions, any conclusions made are done so in spite of the evidence. So it stands to say that if one finds themselves at a sound moral conclusion, but did not find their way there by following where the evidence leads, then one just got lucky. More often than not, people come to sound moral conclusions because they intuitively understand objective moral facts and utilize them in their subjective calculations. Subjective moral systems fail us when people assign the value of good onto something that is bad and vice versa. In order to determine what differentiates good from bad, we must utilize objective data, and thus, we introduce objectivity into our moral system. Given this fact, then, we must conclude that morality is not wholly subjective. One of the most glaring issues with subjective moral systems is that people cannot be trusted to assess their actions soundly. In the case of Ted Bundy, he very clearly assigned the value of good onto his actions and wanted to claim his right to bodily autonomy as he sat on death row. He made this claim knowing full well that he did not respect the bodily autonomy rights of the women that he murdered. Obviously, this is a complete moral contradiction, one that subjective moral systems do not address and resolve. In the case of Ted Bundy, he just got unlucky because society didn't agree with him 
and place the value of bad onto his actions. However, in a subjective moral system, society could have just as easily assigned the value of good onto Ted's actions. Clearly, a subjective moral system fails to provide humanity with any moral direction towards flourishing and away from suffering. The only way we can resolve this is by employing the use of objective evidence to support our moral claim that actions that lead to suffering are immoral. It's then and only then that we understand fully the impact of our actions. From there, we must equally apply our moral solutions and conclusions onto our actions and the actions of others. By doing this, we avoid the mistakes made by those that assign the value of good or bad onto their actions and the actions of others arbitrarily and maintain our moral integrity. If we build a solid foundation of moral integrity in this way, we ensure that our moral system treats everyone the same, especially when we are assessing our own actions. Next, let's address the claim that morality is arbitrary. There is one way in which morality can be thought of as arbitrary. When we think of the arbitrary nature of morality, we must focus on the moral continuum we described in episode 7, Deuteronomy, of this series. That is to say that you may arbitrarily place yourself or others anywhere on the line between suffering and flourishing that you like. Your assessment of your starting point isn't as important as the evidence that you reference when deciding what actions to take and which direction you are likely to move as a result. Your starting point in this way is arbitrary. You may think that it should be closer to suffering than to flourishing, or perhaps the other way around. No matter where you start, the goal is the same, to move towards flourishing. This is the only context in which morality can be considered arbitrary. After that, all the decisions you make should be based on the evidence that exists so that you can move towards flourishing and away from suffering. And there's nothing arbitrary about evidence. When subjective moral thinkers claim that morality is arbitrary, they mean that it can be dictated. They want to say that they can make a moral proclamation, any proclamation, and as long as they have deemed it either good or bad, that their proclamation relates to morality. Again, in part one, the example given was how much candy a mother gives her child. The subjective moral thinker claims that the mother can just say that the child may have five pieces of candy, arbitrarily. The reason is given that it's because they said so. Again, arbitrarily. But what does the evidence suggest? Both the subjective moral facts and the objective moral facts are that the child will receive subjective joy from eating the candy, the way we all do, and that if the child eats too much candy, they will get sick, the way we all will. So now that we have a human data set filled with evidence to work with, we can make an educated moral decision. Based on the size and age of the child and the amount of sugar in the candy, we can assess exactly how much to give a child so that they will maximize their flourishing and minimize their suffering. The key here is that we weigh the evidence with great care. Calculating the evidence is, after all, the only tool available to us for making such a moral assessment. However, if we just proclaim that the child can have six pieces of candy, without considering any evidence, as the arbitrary moral thinker is suggesting, then we take ourselves out of the moral equation altogether. Arbitrary moral proclamations don't take anything into consideration, not the evidence or the well-being of anyone. There is no moral calculation being made. This is why morality cannot be arbitrary, because the claim that morality is arbitrary is in direct contradiction to a sound moral system. 
Morality is based on suffering and flourishing of homo sapiens. If, when you are making your decisions on how to behave, and you don't take human suffering or flourishing into account at all, then you are not utilizing any moral system. You are amoral. You're just proclaiming a thing without any consideration for how it affects humanity. For a moral system to provide value, direction, and be sound, it must incorporate a moral calculation. And that calculation must be based on evidence that provides direction away from suffering and towards flourishing. Before we answer the next question, I need to issue a warning. Warning. The following is going to discuss sensitive topics. Viewer discretion is advised. Now, let's answer the question, does might make right? You know, I wish I had a dollar for every time I've heard someone either state this as fact or conjure it into existence to support their conclusions. While it's obvious that there are many people who believe this is a moral truth, one that we should abide by, it should be very easy for anyone to produce an example where this moral wisdom clearly breaks down. If you haven't already thought of the obvious example, it's rape. Rape is a clear case where might does not make right. And after you consider the evidence, it will hopefully lead you to an effortless acceptance of this truth. Let's now consider the evidence. If I have the ability to rape someone, then I have the might. The fact that I'm stronger or smarter than someone else, so much so that I can get them to have sex with me against their will, that does not make my action of raping them right. My might doesn't change the pain and suffering I'm causing, nor does it excuse it. Rape is immoral because it causes pain and suffering. This is demonstrated by the objective moral facts and the subjective moral facts that the rape produces. These facts provide a sound foundation for our moral system. Might does not make right. Facts and evidence makes right. Moving on, the next claim that subjective moral thinkers make is that values are subjective. This claim has some nuance that we must take into account to fully understand the answer. It is a fact that people generally have a set of values, and that those values can be unique to the individual, either in their entirety or in the order in which the individual ranks their values. But in following the Schilling standard and implementing a sound moral system, the facts that we collect into our human data sets show us some very important trends. When we ask questions to people about what they value, they almost always have similar answers, especially when they when we word the question in such a way that it puts them as the subject of the question. So if you ask someone what the punishment should be for a certain crime, they may say death. But if you ask them how they should be punished for the same crime, they almost always choose the opposite. So when the question is about humanity in general, many people fail to give the same answers as they would if the question was directed at themselves. This is an interesting phenomena, one that sheds light on the subjective moral thinker's claim that values are subjective. When we utilize the sound moral system I promote, we ask the questions directed at the subjects themselves so that we get the answer each individual would give for themselves, not other people. That way, people describe how they want us to treat them and not how they think others should be treated. By changing the golden rule into the shilling standard so that the focus is to ask people how they'd like us to treat them instead of how they'd like others to be treated, we ensure that we get the most direct and honest answers to our questions. 
These answers can then be gathered into a human data set, just like we described in Deuteronomy, and utilized to determine exactly what values people actually have. For the purposes of a sound moral system, it's enough to say that the subjective elements of human values can and should be compiled into human data sets in this way. Then we can aggregate those data to objectify them. Once we do that, then we find that what were previously thought to be completely unique and subjective values are actually quite widely held and not as different as we once thought. So the answer to the claim that values are subjective is that they are not as subjective as we once thought they were, especially when we ask people how they'd like us to treat them. This leads us to the last claim that subjective moral thinkers make, that harm is subjective. If there is one aspect of morality that isn't subjective in nature, it's harm. How to cause it, how to measure it, and what its effects are on those that experience it. Sadly, we probably have more evidence that describes the different ways in which humanity suffers than we do of it flourishing. One interesting aspect of morality is that people rarely engage in it by themselves. This is because when we do things to ourselves, we are always giving consent. We are always justifying it. And we are always forgiving of our trespasses against ourselves. When people harm themselves, it's either an accident or it's intentional. In either case, there is no one to hold to account or to blame. We will discuss this further in a future episode, but for the purpose of this episode, it's safe to say that people don't commit acts of immorality against themselves. Harm is probably almost always done to others, either intentionally or unintentionally. So again, it is necessary for us to utilize the Schilling standard and build a human data set. Luckily, we, current have, we currently have many data sets to help us understand the different ways in which people suffer and flourish. Data sets containing medical, psychological, physiological, and other data from scientific disciplines that relate to all human beings. It's this data, these facts, that would then provide us with the direction needed to lead us away from suffering and towards flourishing in our outcomes. When we utilize human data sets like the ones I'm describing, we needn't think of harm as subjective. For instance, the data set that contains data on the kinds of conditions newborn babies suffer or thrive in is not filled with subjective preferences or accounts. They are filled with data that describe poverty, sanitation, competent medical services, and education levels of both the parents and the society in which they live. And again, there is nothing subjective about these data. As another example, we know for a fact with huge data sets to support our conviction that unclean drinking water causes great human suffering. It leads to suffering and death of the worst kind. There is no subjective claim any one person or group of people could make to change this fact. To take this one step further, if there was a group of people who claimed that unclean drinking water was fine for humanity, or suggested that we shouldn't care about clean drinking water, or even instituted a policy that contaminated our drinking water, we would be right to judge them as immoral. Our judgment wouldn't be a subjective one. It would be based on the evidence and facts that we know about how humanity flourishes when they have access to clean drinking water. So the notion that harm is subjective is a false one. We know for a fact reliable ways to cause harm to humans. And we know this because of the scientific data we've gathered 
from humans that have been harmed. It's really that simple. In conclusion, the moral system that I'm promoting in this series handles the ideas and conundrums that subjective moral thinkers pose without losing sight of the subjective moral facts that we must take into account if we are going to build a sound moral system. What should be clear to you now is that morality is not subjective in nature, nor is it objective. Rather, it is a combination of the two. Both aspects have to be considered because of the subject matter of morality, homo sapiens. If our moral system accomplishes anything, it has to provide us with a sound foundation from which to work from. That foundation is made from the people that are being affected by our moral proclamations and edicts. So it is there that we must gather our evidence. Evidence from the subjective minds of humanity and evidence of the objective facts that humanity produces when they are flourishing and suffering. When we combine them together to direct us in our decisions, only then do we guarantee that our outcomes will be sound and moral. Subjective moral systems fail us in so many ways and on so many levels because they don't consider the evidence other people or humanity in general generate on a regular basis. If, after all this, you are still not convinced that a sound moral system must take into account both the subjective and the objective facts of humanity, then ask yourself this question. Is it possible for someone to act immorally even if they assign the value of good onto their actions? The answer is, of course, yes. And the only way to deduce this answer is to evaluate the evidence objectively. In the next episode, we will move on to the second gospel, dealing with the claim that morality is wholly objective. Please join me. Thank you, and this has been Ear Seduction.